0: Jeremiah chapter 17, Jeremiah 17, we will be studying verses 1 through 10, we will do our best to get through verse 10, and then next week we'll pick up in verse 11. Let's ask the Lord to bless the preaching of the word. This whole passage is dealing with the heart, and my prayer is that God would speak to your heart. I pray that you would leave with changed hearts hearts. So let's ask the Lord to do his work. Father, we come before you and we are thankful for Sunday evening worship. We are thankful that we get to worship you morning and evening. And Father, we pray that you would speak to our hearts. There's so many different excuses that we could have made, rain, tired, but in your providence we are here. So, Father, we pray that we would receive a blessing because we are here. We pray that you'd be honored and glorified because we are here. And we pray that you would speak to our hearts because we are here to worship you. Please use this passage for your honor and glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Jeremiah 17, verse 1. The sin of Judah is written with a pen of iron. With the point of a diamond, it is engraved on the tablet of their heart. And on the horns of their altars, while their children remember their altars and their ashram, beside every green tree and on every high hill, on the mountains, in the open country, your wealth and all your treasures I will give for spoil as the price of your high places for sin throughout all your territory. You shall loosen your hand from your heritage that I gave to you, and I will make you serve your enemies in a land that you do not know, for in my anger a fire is kindled that shall burn forever. Thus says the Lord, Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from the Lord. He is like a shrub in the desert and shall not see any good. He shall dwell in the parched places of the wilderness and in an uninhabited salt land. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. He is like a tree planted by water, that sends out its roots by the stream, and does not fear when heat comes, for its leaves remain green, and is not anxious in the year of drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit. The heart is deceitful above all things, and desperately sick. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind, to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit, of his deeds, and thus sends the reading of the very words of God. If you turn on your radio, or if you listen to any type of music, you will know that there are a lot of songs that mention body parts. The Beatles wrote a song about, I want to hold your hand. Cutting Crew wrote a song, I just died in your arms tonight. Even in 1959, Paul Anka wrote a song, Put Your Head on My Shoulder. The police wrapped around your finger, and of course, who would ever forget the eagles, you can't hide those lying eyes. A lot of songs about body parts, but did you know there's not one song about the spleen? <laughs> and if you were not in Sunday school, and that's an inside joke as John talked about the spleen this morning and explained that through his lesson, you'll have to go online and listen to it. But there's not a lot of songs about the spleen. I can't think of any, but there are a myriad of songs about the heart. Songs about the heart are legion. You can think about Doris Day with a song in my heart, or Bing Crosby, my foolish heart. Jackie Wilson, who eventually had a song by Celine Dion, re-sung that my heart will go on. Or maybe you like Elton John, don't go breaking my heart. I know some of your favorite songs is the Backstreet Boys' Quit Playing Games with My Heart, or maybe Put a Little Love in My Heart, or Frank Sinatra, Young at Heart, or Janis Joplin, Take a Little Piece of My Heart, and of course, Rob Shepard's favorite song by Billy Ray Cyrus, The Achy Breaky Heart. <laughs> there are so many songs about the heart. And as you know, they're not talking about the, the muscle that, that pumps blood, that has the left and the right valves and the veins and the atriums and the artery. That's not what it's speaking about. All those songs about the heart are the inside of you, the inner self. One of the first words that you learn in Greek is, is ego or "egon," if you add the little section to it. But it means I, I, me, I. Then in Latin... It ended up being ego. You know what that is. The, the, the ego, the, the, the inner self. And that can be good or bad, right? Well, most of the time we think of ego, we think, oh, that person has a big ego. And, and, they, and they try to control, and they're narcissistic. And sometimes they're, they hate themselves and therefore they still do the same thing because they have to quiet that inner voice inside of them. Either way, what we see is this is the inner self. It's Who you are on the inside. And we can look toward Campbell and we can look toward Freud and we can say, what is the ego? What is the me, the it? What, What am I? But you've missed the point. You need to go to scriptures and find out who you are. You need to go to scriptures and find out what is on the inside of you. And Jeremiah has a lot to say about who you are on the inside. And if you're taking notes, we're going to see four things that he talks about the heart. First thing you'll see is he says that the heart is hard. The second thing we'll see is that the heart is driven. The heart is driven. It drives your actions. right? It controls what you do. Third thing we'll see is the heart is deceitful. And the fourth thing we'll see is the heart is known by God. The heart is hard. It drives your actions, the heart's deceitful, and it's known by God. We've all heard that diamonds are a girl's best friend. One of the reasons it's their best friend is because it's very valuable, and it's it's a very hard stone. One commentary said a diamond is 58 times harder than the next hardest mineral on earth. One other man wrote, in the 15th century, it was discovered that only diamonds can cut other diamonds. Some of you who like to do construction understand if you want to cut hard cement or hard asphalt, you need a diamond blade. We understand how hard the diamond is. And what Jeremiah is saying here is, Judah, your heart is so hard. God has to take this pen of iron with the point of the diamond and write something on your heart. And look what it says in verse 1. The sin of Judah is written... With a pen of iron, with a point of a diamond, it is engraved on the tablet of their heart. Tablet, table, of the heart. They they used to lay out stones and they would write with this granite or write in the granite with the point of a diamond um, in this iron pen, and they would engrave something. And every time someone went by, they saw it. They saw it. It was almost almost permanent. You get the point here. Their heart is so. that God is saying I am going to write your sins on your hard heart with this diamond pointed iron pen you can't erase it you can't erase it at all it's pretty permanent when you engrave something in rock that hard with with the iron and diamond pen and if you love Jesus, you, you don't have to guess where I'm going next. Because you know, this takes a miracle for that heart to be changed. The miracle of regeneration. You can't get past reading Jeremiah and you're seeing, when is, when is it coming, Travis? <laughs> when is Jem and Jeremiah? When are you going to change my heart? But he's dropping breadcrumbs of the new covenant throughout this whole entire passage. But God is telling Judah, your heart is hard. Look what it says, and on the horns of their altars, even their altars that they made sacrifices. Remember, they, they, they were making sacrifices. They put these horns of these, of these false gods even on their altars as they were making sacrifices to false gods. He says, you even made a mockery of sacrifice. You put these horns on your altars. In verse 2, while their children remember their altars and on their asherim, beside every green tree and on the high hills, on the mountains, in the open country. It's everywhere. This is what kids remember. If you ask me about my great-grandmother, I'm going to tell you my memory of my great-grandmother. I used to go to her house. I'll never forget. I used to have to lay on her couch, and it had plastic on it. And I got all clammy. It's, I don't know what it was, but that generation loved to put the, 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 the plastic on the couch. And I just, I don't like laying there. It made me sweaty and clammy. And she had all these little trinkets of like, these little Spanish-looking horses. I don't really remember much about it, but it was like everywhere, Spanish little horses and plastic. That's what I remember as a kid. When these kids come out of the promised land, and they're in Babylon, you know what they're going to remember? Remember all the idols that were everywhere? It's engraved in their minds. They're everywhere. That's what they're going to remember about the land that was promised to them as a heritage. Idolatry everywhere. It just made me think about grandparents and uncles and aunts and, and parents. What are your kids going to remember when they come to your house? What are they going to remember you teaching them? Will it be I love football more than anything or sports or fishing, whatever it is? Or will they remember, you know what? They walk with God. Kids are impressionable. And this is what they're going to remember when they they get to to Babylon. They're going to remember in the land there were just idols everywhere. God will continue to say in verse 3, Your wealth and all your treasures I will give for spoil as the price of your high places for sins throughout all your territory. You shall loosen your hand from your heritage that I gave to you And I will make you serve your enemies in a land that you do not know. For in my anger a fire is kindled that shall burn forever. They thought that they could have the blessings of God and still live any way they want to live. Now if that doesn't speak to modern culture, I don't know what does. Thinking that you can have all the blessings you want and live any way you want to live. And God is saying, no. That's not the way it's going to work. And the reality is, is that that hard heart is what, what we had by nature. We have it by nature, given to us by Adam. And that's why we look to Christ for a new heart. Which brings us to the second part of the sermon as we look at the heart is the driver of our actions. I remember growing up, I used to do stupid things. And I remember my dad used to look at me and he said, Why did you do this? And I always made excuses. Sometimes I didn't know why I did it. But if you ask me now, I'd tell you why I did it. Because I wanted to. I wanted to do this stupid thing. It was in my heart, deep down within, and I chose to do it because I wanted to do it. The wisest man that ever lived, Solomon, was very clear in Proverbs 4.23 The reason why you do what you do. Because of your heart. That's why he says keep your heart or guard your heart in all vigilance. Why? From for it will flow the springs of life or for out of it are the issues of life. Whatever's inside of your heart is going to come out. This is the reason Jesus says it's not what what you put in that defiles you. He says it's what comes out that defiles you. Because your heart is in the driver's seat and is driving your actions. James 1.15, which we heard as we read through Hebrews. Pastor David made it clear. It says, desire, when it's conceived, gives birth to sin. So you have this little ember, this little fire of desire that's inside of your heart. And then when it's conceived, it gives birth to sin. And eventually, you keep feeding it, and feeding and feeding and feeding it, and feeding it, and feeding it. And the next thing you know, when it's fully grown, it brings forth death. But that choice was deep down in your heart. And what Jeremiah is putting forth to these people is he's asking them, Do you want blessings or do you want cursings? What is it going to be? What do you want? And what do you want? What is your heart screaming out for right now? And he gives this little chiasm. It's pretty neat. He he basically says in verses 5 to 6, is he's talking about the man who's cursed. In verses 7 to 8, he's talking about the man who is blessed. Clearly, he learned his lesson when he went before God and said that he was the blessed man of Psalm 1. And God said, whoa, whoa, whoa. And he's like, wait a minute. (laughs) I can't do that, right? And it's not the first time he brings up Psalm 1. He's like, I can't be self-righteous. And here we see that he says, no, you can be cursed if you want to trust in your righteousness in man. Or you can be blessed because you trust in the Lord. Look at verse 5. Thus says the Lord, Cursed is the man who trusts in man. What's it going to be? Cursed? Cursings? You want cursings? Well, trust in man. You make, make your flesh your strength whose heart turns away from the Lord. Or go to verse 7. What's it going to be? Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. Instead of trusting in yourself and trusting in humanity, trusting in the wisdom of the world, you're trusting in the Lord. You're trusting in Christ. And he sets forth this. What is it going to be? Well, what's the effects of the man that is cursed? Verse 6 says, He's like a shrub in the desert and shall not see any good come. He shall dwell in the in the parched places of the wilderness, in an uninhabited salt land. You see a little tree in a desert. It needs water. It's withering. It's dying. There's no fruit. It's on the verge of death. He says that's what you are when you're cursed. That's what you are when you're trusting in in man. There's no way for you to get water. There's there's, There's nothing there. But if you're a blessed person and you're trusting in Christ, verse 8 says, You're like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream and does not fear when heat comes, for its leaves remain green and is not anxious in the year of drought. Why? For it does not cease to bear fruit. There's fruit everywhere. Even during the drought, the roots go so deep that the drought doesn't even affect it. Isn't that fascinating? You trust in yourself. It seems like the littlest thing, can, the little tiny wind is going to tump you over. You have no roots, no root system. But when you trust in the Lord, your roots go deep. You know, hard times don't, it doesn't make the man. We heard hard times make the man. No, they don't. They just reveal who you are. They reveal where your roots are. They reveal if you're the blessed or the cursed person and your heart drives what flows out of you the the heart is driving you and it's a spiritual issue blessings or cursings what do you want and some people say well travis is that just an old testament teaching i mean blessing and cursing we get it we've been going through covenants made simple we've been going through the covenants we've been going through so much is there anything in the new testament about blessings and cursings I was reading an old Scottish man. I like reading old Scottish preachers. They they always seem to have these these golden nuggets. And he said, when you look at Matthew 25, and Matthew 25 is the great passage where Jesus Christ is coming. It's the last thing we we, we see in in history. Jesus Christ is going to return. And in Matthew 25, he's separating the sheep and the goats. And he takes the sheep, and he, and he puts them on the right and he takes the goats and he puts them on the left. And you know what's interesting? In Matthew 25, verse 34, the king will say to those on his right, what will he say? Come, you who are blessed. You who have blessings. And then in verse 41, he'll say to the goats, depart from me, you who are cursed. See, this isn't just a Old Testament teaching. There's blessings and cursings even at the great judgment. You'll either be blessed in Christ because of the blood of Jesus, or you'll be cursed because you brought your own righteousness before the Lord. And what's scary about that is that the heart is very deceitful. Very, very deceitful. When we look at this word deceitful, It made me think about my house that was built in the 70s versus my house that was built in the late 90s that I live in now. When I bought my first house that was built in the 70s, oh, it looked like it was built in the 70s. Probably everything was the same color as the chair you're sitting in now. (laughs) But boy, was everything straight as an arrow. I'm talking about straight as an arrow. The boards were massive. Everything was square, square. You could put a square everywhere and it's completely square. You know, my house built in the 90s, not so much. <laughs> Sometimes things aren't as square as I wish they were. And when you look at this word, deceitful, it's really talking about being crooked. It's about hills and plains. Instead of looking at things straightly, it's like, like your view, your perception is a, is a bit off. It's a bit, it's a bit crooked. And this word deceitful here is is really talking about the, the insidiousness, the subtleness, and the craftiness of our actual hearts. He says, above all, this is what our hearts are like. It doesn't say, above all things, you have the most evil heart in the world. Don't you think that's what it should say? Above all, you have the most wicked and evil heart. And the word he says, No, above all, what? Your heart's deceitful. Calvin will remind us. This is John Calvin, not Calvin here, but we appreciate Calvin being here this morning. But Calvin tells us many lay hold on these words and manipulate them without understanding the design of the prophet. This is very absurd. For we ought first to see what the prophet had in view. If we wish to read the prophet with benefit, we must first consider the reason why this thing was spoken. He's saying, take it in context. Remember the context. Jeremiah has been telling us that these people of Judah thought they were right. They really thought that what they were doing was absolutely right. Even in chapter 7, which we'll see this, and once again in chapter 19, when they were sacrificing their own children to Molech, killing them, they were convinced it was the right thing to do. They were absolutely convinced. But see, silly rabbit, as we see the commercial trickster for kids, right? This is kids thinking. No, our hearts are completely deceitful. Isaiah 5.20, woe to them that call evil good and good evil. It's a deceptive way in which our our heart tells us what to do. And really, this is the devil's language. How many times when you spoke to someone, they'll say, well, I feel. I feel. Debate someone online. Well, I feel. Wait, what? I feel. I feel, and I'm saying, well, I feel this. I feel it. We have to be very understanding about our hearts. I once was speaking to someone and I reminded them of the story of Peter. And this young man was being divisive in my opinion. It just wasn't my opinion. He actually was. And I explained to him the story of Peter. And if you remember that Jesus was going to Calvary, He says, I'm going to suffer and Peter takes him aside and rebukes him. He rebukes the Lord of glory. He rebukes God incarnate. Could you j- just stop for a second? Peter rebukes, who? rebukes Jesus. And he says, this will never happen to you. I will not let you go and suffer And what did Jesus say? Jesus turned to Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You did not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Satan had deceived Peter. Peter in his heart thought he was doing the right thing. I'm protecting my rabbi. I'm protecting Jesus the Christ, Son of the living God. I'm protecting him. Do you see how Subtle it was. Do you see the deception there? Thomas Brooks, one of the great Puritans that wrote precious remedies against Satan's devices, says that Satan likes to paint sin with colors of virtue. Satan knows that if he were to present sin accurately, you would run away from it rather than be attracted to it. Therefore, he conceals sin behind the camouflage of virtue so you can more easily be overcome by it and take more immediate pleasure in committing it. When he does this, pride comes in the form of neatness, covetousness, in the form of thrift, and drunkenness, in the form of good times. Whatever temptation you are prone to, he will likewise dress it up as virtue. So no matter what besetting sin you may have, he's going to dress it up, and your heart's going to think you're doing Something good. If I can tell the children anything in here, kids, Satan's not going to come to you and go, "Ruh, I'm Satan." Oh, he's Satan. Let's run away. He's an angel of light. He's going to present himself in a good way, in a good light. He's going to present himself the way. That's how Satan presents himself. When Hitler presented himself, according to Theodore Abel in his great book, Why Hitler Came into Power says he didn't come as the most evil man and didn't tell people he was evil. He presented himself as a good person who just wanted social reform, who preached about having faith in the German people and was a charismatic leader. Book written in the 50s by the way. This is how Satan presents himself. You cannot cannot trust your heart. I remember man, and this is one of the things that really drove me into the Calvinism. Um, He he shared a story with me. And he was talking about God understanding the heart. And you look at verse 9, it says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Who can understand this heart? And I'm speaking to this man, and he's telling me I'm a youth pastor. He's one of my youth counselors. his late 30s. I'm 23 years old. I don't have a lot of tools in my tool belt. And he looks at me and tells me he is leaving his current wife to marry another woman. And at 23 years old, I'm like, I, I just know the Bible is against that, right? <laughs> you can't do that. And he's like, well, I'm doing it anyway. He started with the I feel. And I was like, well, I, 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 I think. If I'm, my Bible's right, if I remember what I learned, that there's a sin unto death, and if you reject this, you could wake up one day and perish forever in hell. And he says, once saved, always saved, brother. It's like, oh, and, and, and I didn't have the tools in my tool bag to, to, to explain this at 23, but he continued on and on and on. And eventually he got to the point where he says, listen, you're a lot younger than me but God knows my heart. You ever had that before? You ever had someone look you in the face and go, you know what? God knows my heart. Do you understand the context? The context of Jeremiah 17 is Judah looking and going, well, God knows my heart. This is the problem. The problem is, who can understand it? Well, verse 10 says, I, the Lord, search the heart, God knows it. God knows what's really behind your actions and your motives. And not only that, doesn't not only doesn't know the heart, he tests the mind. And the and the mind's not the mind. If you look at your little sub sub note my my mind says kidneys, because that's the word, it was the innards they actually thought, they didn't have a word for, for the gut feeling. They thought the kidneys is what really controlled the emotions, so they would say heart, kidneys. But they're really talking about the inside here. Right? God searches and knows your heart. That's the context. That's scary to say, well, God knows my heart. Of course, He does. That's why it's scary when someone says, God knows my heart. And the good news is this He knew our hearts. And he knew how filthy and evil they were. And that they were etched with a pen of iron, with a diamond blade on the bottom. Wickedness. Deceitfulness. And yet he changes them. Because he loves us in his grace. This is what he does. He looks at us. God knows my heart. Of course he does. And what he does is he changes it in spite of knowing our hearts. Jeremiah is constantly dropping breadcrumbs, telling people, you need a new heart. The old heart's not going to cut it. Eventually we'll get to a great chapter where we'll see what God's going to do with your old heart. As we close, there's a lot of songs about the heart and out of all the songs I can think about the heart, my personal favorite was one written by King David under inspiration of the Holy Spirit in Psalm 51. And a man named Keith Green took that, and if you know me, you know I love Keith Green, and he, and he put it in music, modern day music, because we don't know what the music was like. We know when they, they stopped breathing and stuff, but we don't know what the music was like. And I'll never forget when I, when I first heard this song. I, I couldn't stop listening to it. Keith Green, as he sings scripture, says, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from thy presence, and take not thy Holy Spirit from me. Restore unto me the joy of my salvation, and renew a right spirit within me. He's crying out to God, create in me a clean heart. Even in his poor theology, and how he does have poor theology. He has the best theology now. He's better than all of us put together, trust me. He knew that it, was, it took the act of God to change the heart. And he was crying out to God, asking him to change his heart. And once it was changed, he understood that's where joy came from. That's where the joy comes from in our salvation. It's because our hearts are changed. It's not something that we have inside of ourselves, really. You can't trust in yourself. Your heart's deceitful. We go to Scripture and we ask the Spirit to give us the heart of joy and the eyes to see the Scripture. And my prayer is that we will continue to go to God and ask Him to give us new hearts. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a right spirit within me. I want to have that joy. I want to see you. But but I don't want to trust them myself. And I know my heart's a bit deceitful and wicked. I pray and hope the Lord will teach us those things. Let's ask the Lord to bless the preaching of the Word of God.